really we're, we have an invitation to look more deeply at forgiveness. And, and so that's where we're going to be kind of touching on a little bit more today. Um, I do not have um, any nice things up here, so you've got your notes. Uh, hopefully you have your Bibles. I, I only put a couple of verses. There's some longer things that I'm going to be reading. But we're going to be uh, probably spending more than one week, maybe even a few weeks. Uh, you'll notice the title is just Forgiveness One. Um, that's the uncreative way to say this is the first week, and it'll be probably more than one week on touching this. And and uh, I'm going to open in prayer, uh, and we're going to step on the scripture that we're going to that we're going to be standing on and kind of returning to, and then uh, and look at uh, a message for today. But as you go through, I think I even put a, a comment in here that as we go through, um, there's. This isn't one of those deals like you're going to, we're going to talk about forgiveness today and it's all settled and done. So as we get partly through here and you think, he's not talking much about forgiveness. That's okay. We'll get there. This is, this is like a, I often, I think about, you know, like you run into somebody and you have a friend from, let's say, Bulgaria. Or how about this, Tonga. I actually have a friend from Tonga. Hello, friend from Tonga. And so let's say I run into somebody from Tonga and I'm saying, oh, you're from Tonga. Do you know my friend Tali? Well, if they're from Oregon, they might, right? But if they're not, like, from, like, right here, they'd be like, seriously, Tonga's a country. <laughs> you know? It's like somebody runs into you. Oh, you're from America? I have a friend from America. Do you know so-and-so? Right? What are the odds? So well, what, what, what I'm talking about is, like, when we engage about something as, as broad and as deep as forgiveness, it, it, it's okay. It takes a little bit to process and to touch some of the corners of this. And uh, anything with the Lord is, is typically um, both, um, almost, I'll say infinitely or perfectly pinpoint simple, and yet it has never-ending complexity, and it's all kind of rolled in together. That's part of the nature of engaging, engaging with a God who's external to and greater than the natural universe. He doesn't fit in any of our boxes, right? And so that's why it touches on this. Also, yeah, we'll stop there. Let's just, let's just pray and we'll dive in. So, Lord God, um, as we look at your word, um, you, Holy Spirit, wrote this through your servants, through our fellow followers, through those who've gone before us, who loved you and heard your voice. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak to us through scripture today. And the thing that we would hear would be the thing that you would say. God, I ask that uh, any words that come from me, that however they come out, they would not be misunderstood. In fact, it doesn't even matter so much what I say as much as what we hear. And may what we hear be from you and you alone. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. I ask you to speak this morning. May we hold you and your word in honor in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you want to, you can join me over in Colossians chapter 3. Um, for your reference, uh, I'm typically um, pulling out of the English Standard Version, the ESV. So if, you're, if your Bible sounds a little bit different, that might be why. And I'm just going to read, just briefly, three verses. Colossians 3, uh, verses 12 through 14. We're going to kind of stand on that for a moment, and then we're going to go other places. But this will be probably our foundation. So Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, 
meekness and patience, bearing with one another and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so this short passage, it challenges me to begin asking some additional questions. Some of the questions that I find myself asking are really obvious questions, and some might be less obvious. Now, I'm going to share some of this. We're not going to address all of this today. It's just too big. So, for example, if, we're, if we are to forgive in the same manner that Jesus has forgiven us, then we should be asking about the nature of the forgiveness that comes from Jesus, right? We're supposed to do what he did. We need to understand what it is that he did. And so one broad question and a core question is, how has Christ forgiven us? And then there's some other nuances as I, as I look at this and, and wrestle with this myself. I find some of the nuances of Christ's forgiveness must also touch on some of other challenging questions. And some of these are maybe things that we haven't thought about super consciously or even tied to forgiveness Uh, but they're ubiquitous across the Christian experience. So in the context of Christ's forgiveness, how is it that anybody can end up in hell at all? Good question, I think. Similarly, how can there be people who don't seem to experience or share forgiveness? In the context of Christ's forgiveness, how, how is it that there's people who don't experience this? Um... Also, in the context of Christ's forgiveness, how is it that Christians can struggle to receive or to give forgiveness? It goes both ways, right? And sometimes we struggle on both ends of that. What about, this is one I've run into, uh, what about invisible unforgiveness? Has anybody been walking through life and you go through and, sorry Jim, you're going through life and suddenly something you just realize that you thought something was all forgiven and everything and then you discover like in your own heart that maybe there's some unforgiveness right this is where you don't raise your hand you just kind of look at me like have no idea what you're talking about but but this is also where where i invite you just to allow the lord to speak sometimes you feel like everything's you're, you're good you know hundred years ago. But if the Lord's speaking, you might write something out and say, yes, it was a hundred years ago, but why does it feel like it was ten minutes ago? Good question, right? Another one is, how do we account for the consequence of, of unresolved hurts and sin? If, if, if Christ is in the context of Jesus' forgiveness, there's consequences, Right? And, and some of us suffer the consequences of unforgiveness and sin and brokenness. It, you don't have to look very far among believers and unbelievers, right? And yet it seems that when there's in the context, even with Jesus' forgiveness, there seems like there's consequences. Has anybody had any sin in your life? This is where you don't have to tell us the story, right? This is, I'm not asking for stories, but any sin that has happened sometime in your past, maybe 4,000 years ago, Okay, maybe 40 minutes ago. And, and there's consequences, and you have been forgiven. We have been forgiven, and yet there's still consequences that we're kind of living out, right? Anybody willing to be that honest? Yeah? This is real stuff. Okay, and so 
what about in the again in the context of Christ's forgiveness? Um, why are we still surrounded by a world that's full of darkness, brokenness, and sin is being expressed everywhere? If if Jesus died for everybody, if if uh, if this is like world altering, why does the world act like it wasn't altered a whole lot? Right now, there's a lot of evidence the world was altered, but I don't know about you, but I've read some pretty horrible things that happened, and yet Jesus. Jesus has come. We're, we're living in the year of the Lord. And so I think um, some of these are, are, are some come in the form of various versions of, of the question of why do bad things happen to good people? You know, if you ever want to look up, that's the title of a book written by Rabbi Kushner. He was a, a, a rabbi, lived in New York City, uh, and a uh, brilliant book. But he wasn't a believer. He came from a Jewish background. But uh, so I've looked... Um, as I began to just to touch on this, I've looked at a series of examples of how Jesus interacted with different individuals or groups of people, and, um, and we can't address all of them. There's a whole slew of them. Uh, so we're not going to look at all these examples today. But today I'm going to point at a really compelling parallel between two very famous characters. You've heard of both of them. And, and then I'm going to invite you to consider how the, the pattern might touch us at a personal level. This is two super famous people and, uh, and, and their, their, their stories are kind of strangely parallel. And the two people I'm talking about are the two disciples of Jesus that both betrayed him. There were two. One is the most famous. His name is Judas. The other one you guys are going to think of is who? Peter. So Judas and Peter. Now Judas, the famous betrayer, has been betraying Jesus all along. In the Gospel of John, we read that Judas was in charge of the money bag for all the disciples, and he had developed a habit of stealing from this. I'm going to read John 12, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to give you a little bit more so you get some context. So six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there, Martha served, And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having the charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And so before Judas betrayed Jesus publicly, when he presenting himself as a follower and a friend of Jesus, that's in the garden, when he was neither, Judas had also been betraying him in secret. And when Judas implies that Jesus is mismanaging money and should be giving more money to the poor, Jesus challenges what Judas says, but he doesn't point at Judas' deeper betrayal. Notice in this, he doesn't say, you were stealing out of the money bag. I know what you're about. He doesn't say that. I think it's interesting that he doesn't. And so... Judas had decided that he was a better steward of finances than Jesus was, but he kept it a secret. 
Now, I'm not convinced that Jesus was as clueless as Judas probably believed he was. But there is no record that I can find of Jesus actually confronting Judas on this, at least explicitly. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, it mentions both Judas' public betrayal following the Passover meal, and while Peter's public betrayal comes later that same night after Jesus is arrested. They're both talked about in that one chapter. In Peter's public betrayal in the courtyard of the high priest's house, he presents himself as neither a follower nor a friend of Jesus when he is both. The exact precise opposite lie of Judas. So interestingly, Peter also denied Jesus in private before he denied him publicly. You guys, I don't know if you caught this. I didn't catch this until recently. You'll recognize the story. Peter's private denial was also the mirror image of Judas' private denial in the same way that their public denials were completely the opposite. I'll read uh, from Matthew 16, just uh, three verses, 21 through 23, so you can catch this. So listen. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Did you notice that this was done in private? I'd never caught that before. Here it says, But Peter took him aside in private, and then he began to rebuke Jesus. Just so you know, I have not had any success in that strategy. And it doesn't look like anybody else has either. So notice, just like Judas, Peter disagrees with what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is doing. But Peter's heart is different than Judas's heart. Where Judas kept what he was doing hidden, Peter pulls Jesus aside to set him straight. Now, Peter may be wrong in challenging Jesus' teaching about what was to come, but Peter loved Jesus. Now, Judas had determined that he was a better financial manager than Jesus was, and Judas kept his betrayal and theft in the dark, convincing himself that Jesus didn't know. So, perhaps was it the moment during the Passover when Jesus looked at Judas and said, what you do, do quickly? Maybe that was when Judas finally realized that Jesus was not deceived. He had not deceived Jesus at all. Or in that moment, did Judas continue to cling to his own deception? Because not that long afterwards, you might recall that even in the Garden of Olives, followed by an angry mob with weapons and torches, even there, Judas implied intimate friendship by greeting Jesus with a kiss. And yet Jesus never seems to confront or correct Judas. That seems really weird to me. Now, Judas keeps himself in the seat of judgment. When he realized that he judged Jesus wrongly, instead of repenting, he just keeps judging. Do you remember this? He judges himself guilty, condemns himself to death, and becomes his own executioner. Judas never chose to be humble and teachable, and it cost him his life. I don't believe that Judas had to choose that. 
But he did choose that. Jesus didn't kill Judas. Judas killed Judas. In Matthew 16, Peter has decided that he's got a clearer understanding on the whole Messiah plan than the Messiah does. Unlike Judas, Peter doesn't hide. He goes to Jesus and he presses his point and then he gets corrected by Jesus. Now, I can only imagine how uncomfortable that would have been for Peter when Jesus turns to Peter, you know, Jesus, I'm your best friend ever, that Peter, and turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. Ouch, is it completely right? The writer in Hebrews helps us understand that moment in words that are recorded in chapter 12, verse 11, and then I'm going to read a little bit more. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Sometimes we experience discipline. The question is, will we be trained by it? Now, I think it's possible that the writer of Hebrews was actually had Jesus, Judas, and Peter in mind when this chapter was being written. And so I'm actually going to read Hebrews 12, 3 through 17, and I ask you to listen carefully. But first, as you listen, imagine that the writer is talking about Jesus, Judas, and Peter, that situation. And secondly, remember that this letter was written to the followers of Jesus. That's us. And so I'd also invite you to ask the question, what what would the Lord be speaking to us today in the context? And so again, I'm reading Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 17. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Remember, Jesus did. And you have and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines for our good that we may share in his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." 
So Judas, he, he chose to remain sure of himself even when he had proven to himself that he was a terrible judge. His unholiness kept him from seeing Jesus and ultimately cost him his life. Not because Jesus was extracting revenge, but he destroyed himself because he refused to surrender his role as judge. Now, Peter chose the uncomfortable path of being humble and teachable. His relationship with Jesus was restored and Peter's story continued. God moved through Peter in power because Peter laid down his own power. It might not seem like I'm talking a whole lot about forgiveness, but our relationship with Jesus rests deeply in our heart condition before him. Do we insist that we are a better judge than he is? I know that there are points when I have, but when you're in the moment, it's sometimes hard to see. And so I'd invite you to ask the Lord. Do we choose to be humble and teachable before him? What is our heart condition before Christ? Jesus, as you know from Scripture, is the way, he is the truth and the life. And so departing from him means we've lost our way. It means that we're missing the truth and that we've turned against our own life if our life is found in Christ. It's not that God is arrogant, like his way is the only way. It's that he's, he won't compromise on truth, right? This is one of those things, like it's so easy in the world we live in to feel like, oh, you know, God is uh, stuffy and stodgy and so rule, like he's a God to control everything. And it's not like that. He's a good father and he knows what's true and he just won't turn from the truth. And therefore, we get to bend, not God. So, and yet, even though we get to bend, not God, and yet, God is love, and love defines all that he does. Peter didn't earn forgiveness any more than Judas did. Neither of them and none of us can earn a place in Jesus' heart. Jesus, uh, Judas refused to let go of himself. He refused to lay down control. He refused to consider the truth that he was not God. He was not the better judge. Peter recognized the truth of his own need, and he got very honest before himself, and he got very honest before God. Now I'm going to close with two passages that illustrate this. The first is, is teaching on this subject from the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's 1 John 1, 5 through 10. And then the second passage we'll get to, it's an illustration of what this looks like. So I'm going to read 1 John 1, 5 through 10. <clears throat> Hear the teaching on this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Is a God a liar? God's not a liar. He doesn't lie. And so last I'm going to close by reading uh, Jesus and Peter's uh, conversation. This is the disciple that betrayed Jesus. And this exchange is an incredibly tender and it's also a very candid moment between Jesus and Peter, as I'm sure many of you are aware. So there are some deep truths uh, as you hear this passage that are lost in most of the translations of this. And so I'm going to paraphrase uh, at a couple of points so that I can try and capture that which is lost without trying to give you Greek words. I'm just going to paraphrase. And we're going to try and capture what is being communicated between these two friends, Jesus, who's the Messiah, and Peter, the pebble. This occurs on the shore of the Sea of Galilee after Jesus' resurrection. It's a season of great uncertainty for the disciples, and it's predictably, it seems, after a night of not catching fish. It seemed to be, I don't know that Peter was that great of a fisherman. It seemed to happen frequently. And so this is John chapter 21. And I'm going to go through uh, 15 through 19. This is, they're now on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me with a perfect, never-failing, never-ending love? Even more than these other guys? And the words kind of stung as Peter remembered how he denied Jesus three times at Jesus' darkest hour. Peter replies to Jesus, Well, yes, Lord, I, you know that I love you. You're my very best friend. And Jesus simply says, Well, then feed my lambs. And then he pauses, and Jesus says to Peter a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me with a perfect, never-failing love? Now, Peter, he might have wondered if Jesus was just trying to rub this in. They both knew that Peter had fallen immeasurably short of perfect, never-failing love. Peter says to Jesus, Yes, Lord, you know you're my very best friend. Jesus simply says to Peter, Then tend my sheep. Another brief pause. Jesus speaks to Peter a third time. Simon Son of John, do you love me the way best friends love each other? Notice the change. Peter's heart was deeply grieved when Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? With no pride, no guile, and from the place of humility, fully knowing his own wrong, Peter replies to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you like my best friend. You are a better friend than any I could ever know. Peter's pride in his own ability that we've read throughout the stories in the Gospels and his desire to be the judge is now completely gone. And Jesus simply says to his friend, Peter, feed my sheep. But the story doesn't end there. There's just a little bit more, and then we're going to close. I suspect at this point that Peter could feel Jesus, his tone soften even a little bit more. Now where, now where Jesus once told Peter of his coming betrayal, 
right? He told, he told Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. Now Jesus tells Peter where his faithfulness is going to take him because Peter is now going to be faithful to Jesus. This is heavy stuff. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another is going to dress you and carry where you do not want to go. The writer says this, he said to show what kind of death Peter was going to glorify God. And then after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Jesus is asking us the same exact question, child, do you love me? Child, do you love me more than all the other things in this life? If you do love me, then follow me and care about the things that I care about. If you do love me, then follow me and care about the things that I care about. So why doesn't Jesus correct Judas? From what I can tell, Judas wasn't a child of God. We read in Scripture, God disciplines his sons. I don't think Judas was a son. He wasn't a child. He wasn't connected. Judas didn't belong to Christ. And so why does Jesus correct Peter? Because Peter was a child of God. Peter did love Jesus. Peter was. He knew that Jesus was his best friend and he desperately wanted to be Jesus' best friend. Peter's heart belonged to Jesus. And I find that very, very sobering. Because there's places we can see in Scripture and in the world where somebody gets something wrong and they're never corrected. And yet God goes to his own and those who are willing to be disciplined and they are the ones that often suffer. Have you seen this pattern? I think Job complains about it. There's other places we see. And so... The core of this is, is that when we're faithful to Jesus, it will cost. It is not an easy life. But if you look at the difference between Judas, Judas remained in the place of the seat of judgment, and it didn't go well for him. Everything was grand and wonderful and delightful until it wasn't, and when it wasn't, it was more horrible, more broken, more terror-filled than Judas would have ever imagined, and any of us, if we were really honest, would not wish that on any other human ever. There's a reason why God is patient. There's a reason why he hasn't come and shifted everything in a moment. It's because he's patient and he doesn't want to lose a single one. Because his understanding of eternity in hell is a lot more clear than mine. And I think if we're honest, we don't want to see anybody there, ever. Not even Judas. And so may it be that we'd have hearts that belong to Jesus, and when he corrects us, we say, yes, Lord. May it be that we would have hearts of compassion for those who don't know Jesus yet. Amen.
So, Lord Jesus, we hear the story of these two men, one who insisted on remaining in the seat of judgment and one who surrendered his seat of judgment and gave it back to you because you are the one that sits on the throne. You're the one who judges rightly. You don't look at people the way people look at each other or how men look upon other people, but you look at the heart, and we trust your judgment. And we also ask that you would judge us. God, we choose to surrender to you that as you bring discipline where we need it, that we will trust, we will know that you are being faithful and the end is a good thing. Help us, God, to surrender to you. We love you, Jesus. Help us to love you rightly. In Jesus' name, amen.